Hello, friends, and welcome to Worldwide Crime. I'm Eric, and as always, I'm joined by Erica, who has possibly the shittiest attitude ever. I wouldn't have a bad attitude if you didn't suck. You just can't help yourself. Neither can you, shithead. Anywho, today we're going to be covering H.H. Holmes, the first American serial killer. First recorded serial killer. You can't expect anyone to believe he's the actual first. Americans have been killing people in droves forever. Well, that's pretty wild coming from a British person. Super hypocritical. But we're not going to argue about that. We're going to talk about H.H. Holmes, who, no matter where you're from, I think we could all agree this guy was a shithead of the highest order. Now, going into the story, I want to preface this by saying that I researched this guy for a long, long time, and there's all kinds of information out there, and it's hard to pinpoint which is accurate and which information is not. Uh, this guy was such a fucking liar that there's no way to really, at least that I could find, pin down what exactly happened. Um, we have a broad overview. So some of the names and things of that nature that you're going to hear in the following story is based solely on what I could find and its entertainment value. So um, with that being said, let's get into the story. May 1st, 1893. The World's Fair begins in Chicago. People from all over flocked there looking for work. One of them was a 22-year-old woman from Indiana called Rosemary Ross. She applied to be a pharmacy assistant after seeing an ad in the newspaper. She headed to 601 West 63rd Street and found a humongous house. It was nicknamed The Castle. The house was so large it spanned nearly an entire city block. It housed several retail stores and a pharmacy. It was the perfect place for people to shop, and many people desired to work there. The young woman locates the pharmacy inside the massive structure and asks the clerk behind the desk if she could please speak to Mr. Henry Holmes. The clerk informed her that she in fact was speaking to Henry Holmes and was quick to correct her, stating, quote, It's Dr. Holmes, end quote. Dr. Holmes owned the building and everything in it. He was remarkably successful and harbored no issue with flaunting it. The woman was set to be the new cashier. Dr. Holmes informed her that the last cashier ran off with a man she had met. The young woman was provided a room in Dr. Holmes' boarding house at a reduced rate as long as she agreed to work in the pharmacy. She would accept, and she was then escorted to her new room by Dr. Holmes. Upon entering the room, the young woman was taken aback at how nice it was. The room was fully furnished with up-to-date and expensive furniture. She could not contain her excitement and her appreciation to the kind doctor. The woman was from a rural area in Indiana, and she had not seen such glamorous and beautiful things before. It was clear that Dr. Holmes built the castle to attract people, both for work and for pleasure. The castle housed 35 boarding rooms on the top floor and all the businesses on the first. This was common for businesses at the time. For the young 22-year-old, this was a dream come true. 
She had a beautiful home and an income and a successful and attractive boss. She had not anticipated it happening so quickly and easily. Rosemary was elated with it all. That right there. That shit right there. If it seems too good to be true, it always is. Preach, sister. On her first day at work, the doctor gave her a tour of the pharmacy and laid out what her responsibilities would be. Among them was protecting a key to a large cabinet. This cabinet is where the doctor housed all the more potent drugs. The drugs were kept behind lock and key due to their lethality in untrained hands. The good doctor and the young woman got along famously as time went on. However, it would not be long before their relationship blossomed into something more. H. H. Holmes was born Herman Webster Mudgett, circa May 16, 1861, in Gilmanton, New Hampshire. Why on earth did he change his name? Well, he's a bullshit artist. Of course he had to cover his tracks, and that was one of the ways he did it. I hate him already. Oh, you haven't heard shit yet, sister. Just wait. He displayed a high degree of intelligence at an early age and seemed to lead a happy childhood. However, his father was rumored to be a violent drunk and took his aggressions out on Holmes. Although born into an affluent family, his childhood was mostly loveless. He began to display signs that were troubling to anyone that became aware. He wanted to be a doctor and began to practice his craft on animals. His surgeries were inhumane to say the least. This behavior continued unopposed. There was even a rumor that he was responsible for the disappearance of one of his childhood friends. High IQ and animal torture. That's two predictors for serial killers. Of course, this was likely unknown in the 1800s. Oh yeah, I agree 100%. And his early childhood with the drunk father and abusive father and, you know, loveless childhood, all that stuff, that... I read that it was the complete opposite as well. So this is just another one of the parts of the story that, I mean, throw your hands up. We don't have proof one way or another that I could find anyways. Despite all this, he was accepted to study medicine at the University of Michigan in 1882. After he began attending the university, terrible things started happening. See, he was a fraudster. He would steal cadavers from the school to make false insurance claims. It was speculated he used corpses for medical experiments as well. In 1885, he moved to Chicago and began work in a pharmacy under the alias Dr. Henry Holmes. He would take over ownership after its original owner had passed away. His success became so great that he had to expand. It would not be long before he built the castle. Rosemary and Dr. Holmes began a love affair. He spent copious quantities of money on his young lover and did whatever he could to make sure she was happy. Rosemary had fallen in love with the dashing, rich doctor. Enter Ned and Julia Connor. It would not be long before Dr. Holmes' affection pivoted away from Rosemary and on to Julia. Ned claimed to be an experienced jeweler, which Dr. Holmes was looking for, but it was clear to Rosemary that Ned's experience was not the reason he was hired. This was obviously an uncomfortable situation for Rosemary. 
The doctor could tell that the young woman was not happy with him. He used his charm to reel Rosemary back into his arms, and soon after, Rosemary disappeared. Wait, what the hell? So he took being a player to a whole new level. Out with the old and with the new, I guess. It's not like he is replacing underwear. These are people. It's all the same to a psychopath, unfortunately. This would be a continuation of what had already become a horrific trend. With the sudden disappearance of Rosemary, which Dr. Holmes stated she left a note explaining she had fallen for another man and ran off with him. The doctor then approached Ned with an idea that would benefit them both. He asked Ned if his wife would be interested in taking Rosemary's position as pharmacy assistant. Ned was excited at the prospect of the added income and working with his beloved in the same building. He took no pause in telling Julie about this opportunity. Julie accepted Dr. Holmes' offer. Other than much-needed employment, she started to notice Dr. Holmes' intrigue. He was everything Ned was not. Wealthy, attractive, successful, intelligent. Julie and Henry Holmes started an affair. Oh my god. This guy sucks. Although, Julia can't be viewed as completely blameless. I had the same exact thought. I mean, she's married. She knew exactly what she was doing. What did Ned think about all this nonsense? Well, he basically got friend-zoned by his own wife. How do you think he feels? Yeah, that's a huge bummer. What happened to Ned after his wife ditched him? Holy shit, I totally forgot to research what happened to Ned. How could I call myself a podcaster if I made this grievous mistake? Why don't you just fuck off? Whoa, calm down there, cranky ass. You sure are asking a lot of questions today, but I can assure you that the answer to your question is coming right up. Fuck. Although obvious, Ned engaged in willful blindness. He did not want to lose his job. Julie and Ned started drifting apart. Dr. Holmes took advantage of that situation and found a way to get Ned out of the picture. He offered Ned his own jewelry store at a different location. Ned reluctantly accepted the offer. He knew that if he did this, he would never be welcome in the castle or see Julia ever again. Henry Holmes had desires that could not be satisfied. Julia was an intelligent woman and knew what the doctor was doing. Her instinct about him cemented when he asked her to step down from her position as the pharmacy assistant. He promised her that he would take care of her, and she would never go without again. Soon after, another beautiful young woman would replace Julia in the pharmacy. It was evident to her that the pharmacy was nothing more than a ruse to attract naive young women. She was very displeased and confronted Dr. Holmes. Once again, the good doctor uses charm to reel her back in. The doctor was caught off guard when Julia informed him that they would have to get married because she was pregnant. Dr. Holmes would give in, but it would come at a cost. He agreed to marry Julia if she got an abortion, claiming he could not afford another mouth to feed. This left Julia in a desperate predicament. Ned was gone, and she had no income of her own. She decided to reluctantly have the abortion. This procedure was going to be performed by Dr. Holmes himself. Julia was shocked at the idea of the father of this child being the one to end its life. 
Dr. Holmes tried to reassure Julia that he had performed many of these procedures before and there was nothing to worry about. Julia was left speechless at Dr. Holmes showing no remorse or empathy towards the mother-to-be. He was more interested in the money it would save. Julia requested the procedure be done immediately, fearing she would change her mind if it were not. Dr. Holmes agreed, but sadly, Julia would not survive this procedure. You see, there was no complication with the procedure. In fact, the procedure never began. Dr. Holmes suffocated her, killing both Julia and their unborn child. Henry Holmes was a superb manipulator. The World's Fair brought millions of people to Chicago. It was the perfect setting for a killer like Dr. Holmes. There was never any shortage of young women to lure to the castle. After all, he was charming, handsome, successful, rich, and most of all, kind. At least, that's what he had everyone he met thinking. You see, there were several people that Holmes could not ignore, or dispose of. They were his bill collectors. Dr. Holmes was broke. He was broke. I actually didn't see that coming. Right? Puts on a good show. I'll give him that. I mean, strangling his lover and the mother of his unborn child was less surprising. That's a really shitty thing to think. But, in my defense, this is that kind of podcast. And you're that kind of host. I'm not saying that to be a dick towards you, I'm just becoming desensitized to the, I'm going to stop talking now. I'm not really sure if I should say thank you or apologize, but it is what it is, I suppose. Anyways, back to the story. He displayed the perfect picture of success. He was always able to con an unassuming financier with his elaborate lies and deceits. With every knock on his door or inquest looking for his loan's repayment, he would easily explain it away and this would quiet the lenders for a time. Then he would do it all over again. It became second nature to lie to people and he did it with precision. One day at a local eatery, Holmes was enjoying a drink and a cigarette when he noticed a young woman sitting at a table nearby. She looked confused, staring at a map. He went over and introduced himself. Her name was Beth Bickford. Beth had just moved to Chicago looking to begin her life as an independent adult. She had a degree and was looking for work. As the two interacted, Holmes would ask Beth what she was looking for on her map. She claimed she was in search of the Columbia Hotel. Holmes then informed her that the hotel had burned to the ground. Beth, knowing that with all the people now in Chicago, her chances of finding another room would be near impossible. Holmes would offer a solution. He offered to rent her one of his rooms for the night. Having no other obvious options, Beth accepted. Later that afternoon, Beth was having difficulty accepting what she felt was charity from Holmes. She came to Chicago to make it on her own. She went down to Holmes' study and informed him of her departure. She claimed that she had a job interview to get to and she would find other accommodations for the night. Holmes quickly asked her for what position she was applying. She was set to interview for a secretarial position, and as luck would have it, Holmes was looking to hire a secretary. He offered her a wage nearly double what her current prospect was offering and a room at a reduced rate. Beth was smart, the smartest Holmes had come across to this point. 
Instead of letting her go for fear that she would figure out his plans, Holmes saw it as a challenge. This was going to be fun, Holmes thought to himself. Rosemary Ross and Beth Bickford. Are those the victims' actual names? Or is Holmes picking off would-be Marvel characters? Well, everything I can find uh, shows that those are the actual victims' names. This is an absolute circus. Is it, though? I mean, most people don't go to a funhouse and wind up dead. They do if you're watching an awesome-ass movie. <laughs> you ain't lying. The year was coming to a close in 1893. Beth had been working for and residing at the Holmes Castle for a time without incident to this point. One day, Beth was coming down the stairs from her room when she overheard two men speaking by the entrance to the castle. Beth stayed out of sight and listened to the conversation. The visitor was Chicago detective Jim Harris. came to inquire about the whereabouts of one Rosemary Ross. What Beth overheard next would send chills down her spine. The detective questioned Holmes' story of the disappearance. The detective knew she worked for Holmes, and he knew she was living at the castle. From letters received from Rosemary's parents, she claimed that Dr. Holmes was so generous and kind, and she was excited at the prospect of her new life. But then, the letters suddenly stopped. It occurred to the detective that Rosemary and her parents wrote each other often, and Rosemary kept no secrets from them. If she ran away with another man, Rose's parents would have known about it. Holmes, being the skilled liar that he is, donned a concerned look and told Detective Harris that he had not heard from Rosemary, but if he did, he would report it immediately. He told the detective if there was anything he could do to help, to just ask. His resources were at the police department's disposal. After the detective saw himself out, Beth entered the room. She asked Holmes if that customer had found everything they were looking for in hopes to catch the generous doctor in a lie. Holmes answered with steadfast conviction. He told Beth that the visitor was just a bill collector looking for payment and he had taken care of it. Beth was now terrified. She began acting different around Holmes, and he suspected Beth of knowing more than she should. In Chicago, 1894, there were countless missing persons cases, and the trend was that a number of them had ties to the castle in one way or another. Holmes was now a person of interest. Beth, now scared, began packing up her things one evening, knowing that her life was in real danger. As Beth was packing in her room, there was a knock at her door. She reluctantly opened it to find Holmes standing there. Holmes would ask Beth if she was free to dine with him. He could not help but notice the bags lying on Beth's bed filled with her belongings. Holmes would ask her if she was leaving. Trying to stay as calm as possible, she told Holmes that her father had fallen ill back in Idaho, and she had to leave at once. She claimed that she would only be gone for a few weeks and that she would hurry back to the castle. Holmes would then offer his sympathies for her ailing father and leave the room. After he closed the door behind him, she let out an exaggerated exhale, fighting back tears. Although Holmes had let her be for the moment, death was looming. She had to get out. Just then, she heard her door lock from the outside. Beth now even more terrified, tried desperately to open the door. It would not budge. She was trapped. As she was in a state of panic, 
she noticed a foreign smell in the room. She did not know what it was, but the smell was getting stronger and stronger. Beth began coughing, struggling for breath. She did not know what to do. She tried opening the window with no luck. It had been latched shut from the outside. And even if it weren't, there were bars on the outside. She was trapped, now suffering from the smell that was robbing her of her breath. She was now beside herself with horror. As Beth struggled to breathe and find a way out of her room, Holmes was able to witness her last moments through a peephole. A peephole that would be duplicated in every single room of the castle. That was not the only ominous attachment to these rooms. Each room was also rigged with a pipeline that allowed Holmes to gas any room at any time. Holmes Castle was a meticulously designed house of death. I have questions. You may ask. Your response was condescending. You must have thought I was asking your permission to speak. That is my fault. Let me be clear, I will never need your permission to do or say anything. Kay? Kay? I'm, I'm the condescending one. <laughs> That's precious. Okay, w would you like to ask your questions now? I'm going to ignore your subpar sarcasm. Anyway, did Holmes build his murder house with his bare hands? No. He designed it, but he had it built by contractors. And none of these contractors found it odd that they were attaching peepholes, trapdoors, and gas lines to every room in the house. Okay, so this would obviously be Red Flag City if it was just one or even two contractors building the house. But Holmes hired and fired contractors many, many, many times just so, you know, he kind of covered his tracks. And I'm sure... Any contractor that questioned what they were doing, like, why am I putting gas lines to every room in the house? He'd say something along the lines of, oh, I want to be able to, you know, pump perfume into the room so it smells nice for my guests or the trap doors or like laundry chutes or something. I don't know. The guy's a piece of shit, but he is smart. He enjoyed watching his victims torment so much. He made sure that no matter the method, he would have a front row seat. After gleefully watching Beth take her last breath, it was time for him to dispose of her body. As it turns out, all 65 rooms in the castle were also rigged with a hidden trap door. The trap doors led to a chute that dropped his victims into the basement that only Holmes had access to. Most of the bodies he dropped into this hidden basement were not cremated or buried but sold, mostly to a man by the name of Charles Chapel. Chapel was a skilled skeletal de-articulator. In other words, he was able to strip away flesh and organs, leaving the skeleton fully intact. Holmes would lie to Chapel about the causes of death, citing an accident or disease or consumption, cutting the poor soul's life short. The finished product of Chapel's labors would then be sold to medical schools and other similar facilities across the country. As if Holmes' secrets were not plentiful enough, it was discovered by police that Holmes had a wife and child. There is absolutely no way in hell that he had a wife while all this was going on. He did. She would have known what he was up to. She didn't. How could she not know? She couldn't. No, she must have been complicit. She wasn't. Holmes' wife's name was Murda Belna. Their young daughter Lucy meant everything to Holmes. He would do anything for them. 
As it turns out, Holmes House of Horrors was expertly designed to hit two birds with one stone. His sick desires would be met, and the bodies fetched him enough money to support his family. Murda was working for Holmes, as many of his victims did. However, instead of killing Murda and selling her corpse, he would buy her a home in Wilmette, a town about 30 miles outside of Chicago. With Beth no longer working for him, Holmes would need a replacement, just like he had so many times before. Enter Emmeline Sagrand. Emmeline was among the most sophisticated and beautiful women Holmes had encountered. She saw Holmes' job posting and set up an interview with him. She then took a train from her home in Lafayette, Indiana to Chicago. With years of secretarial and executive assistant experience, Holmes hired her on the spot. As part of her employment, she was given a room in the castle at a reduced rate. It would not be long before Emmeline and Holmes would become an item. Like all the women before, she was seduced with Holmes' charm, promises of wealth, and family. The two would be married, but Murda was living just 30 miles away. Holmes had somehow convinced her to never come to his castle. For a long time, she didn't. Until one day she decided to surprise her loving husband by visiting the castle. Unbeknownst to Holmes, Murda had witnessed Holmes kissing a beautiful young woman in the terrace of the castle. The next evening, Holmes returned to Wilmette to visit his beloved family. This would prove to be an encounter in which Holmes was unfamiliar. In typical Holmes fashion, he tried to explain it away. He blamed Murda for seeing what she saw incorrectly and the rift in their family she was trying to cause with this baseless accusation. Murder remained steadfast in her claim. Holmes, by all accounts, was a psychopathic narcissist. He refused to accept responsibility for anything negative in his life. When Holmes is cornered, someone usually dies. Now Holmes' two lives were converging, and he had to decide which one he desired more. Holmes would ask for Emmeline's hand in marriage around Christmas time, and she happily accepted. Emmeline was having a wonderful time planning the wedding and deciding whom to invite to this extravagant event. Holmes would suggest a trip to anywhere she desired for their honeymoon, but it was not long before Emmeline found herself in a vault to which she had been lured and trapped inside. Holmes did not suffocate her with gas like some of his other victims, nor did he kill her with his bare hands. Instead, Holmes watched her suffer an agonizing death through one of his peepholes. You see, Emmeline was left in the vault void of light, water, food, and toilet. Holmes relished in observing her wallow in her own filth as she would succumb to dehydration days after she had been locked inside. Murda did not know how fortunate she was. Christmas morning, Holmes would return to the residence in which Murda and Lucy lived. Holmes would convince Murda that Emmeline had been fired and she had moved away. With promises of an event like this never happening again, Murda would eventually forgive him. Their lives would return to how it had been prior to Emmeline ever coming into the picture. Holmes would now have to face a problem that seemed to become more persistent. In the early months of 1894, Holmes' empire would begin to crumble around him. Friends and relatives of the missing women began showing up to the castle, and they all seemed to have the same line of questioning. They were quick to notice that when their stories were compared, they were eerily similar, and they all led back to one man. 
Henry H. Holmes. Holmes was in his study at the castle one day when in walked a private detective. This detective had been hired by those close to Emmeline to investigate her disappearance further. He began to ask questions for which Holmes had no satisfactory answer. Holmes would be cornered yet again, and he would result to his method of problem solving. The detective would meet his end, poisoned by Holmes. With law enforcement, bill collectors, and now private detectives becoming more impatient with Holmes, he had to produce a plan to rid himself of these persistent entities. He would be bombarded with lawsuits and liens against the castle. For Holmes, the noose was tightening. Holmes devised a plan to escape Chicago. He would meet, seduce, and marry a young woman by the name of Minnie Williams. Minnie came to Chicago from her home city, Austin, Texas. She had dreams of becoming an actor, and she felt that the bustling, rebuilt city of Chicago would be as good a place as any to start her journey. Her dream proved to be harder to achieve than she had hoped for, and she gave up. She needed money to survive. And it just so happens there was a wanted ad in the paper for an assistant to one Dr. Henry H. Holmes. Minnie was very unassuming and naive. She would reveal to Holmes that she had inherited land in Fort Worth, Texas. She unknowingly handed Holmes his way out of Chicago. Holmes would convince Minnie to sign an agreement, stating that should one of them die, the other would be afforded the other's assets. Minnie trusted Holmes completely. What she didn't know is that she was signing her own death warrant. Not long after signing the agreement, Minnie would be strangled until life left her body. However, what Holmes did not anticipate is Minnie's assets weren't worth as much as he believed. The castle that he so meticulously designed and built was now becoming his prison. Holmes was now desperately stuck. He had no money and his creditors knew it. He was tied to countless missing women, and detectives were relentless in their pursuit of justice. But Holmes would have yet another trick up his sleeve. Benjamin Freeland Peitzel was a laborer under Holmes' employ. He had showed an odd loyalty to Holmes through his time working for him, and he always seemed to turn a blind eye to some of Holmes' more macabre proclivities. Holmes needed help for his new plan to work and it was time to test Ben's loyalty. This, of course, was a gamble for Holmes, and he knew it. But with his talent for lying, he felt the odds were in his favor. Holmes would convince Ben's wife, Carrie, to take out an insurance policy on Ben. Holmes then explained that he would use a cadaver from a medical facility to appear as Ben's body. They would then collect the funds from the policy and split it. Holmes reassured the young couple that he had done this many times before, and he was never caught. Holmes went on to explain that Ben would need to rent a hotel room in his own name. They would wait till late night, move the corpse into the hotel room, set fire to the room, and escape. Carrie was not convinced this was a promising idea, but Ben was completely on board. After more convincing, Carrie would agree to help with the scam. Now the stage was set. The life insurance policy had been signed, and Ben checked into a run-down, cheap hotel in the city. All that was left to do now is wait. In a sadistic yet unsurprising twist, the corpse that Holmes had been referring was to be Ben himself. This betrayal would be stunning if we did not know what we do now about Holmes. But for him, it was business as usual. 
Ben enjoyed drinking. Holmes knew this and used it to his advantage. He would wait until he believed Ben was extremely intoxicated or passed out in the shabby hotel room. Then he would walk in and poison poor Ben with chloroform, a preferred method of poisoning by Holmes. With his training as a pharmacist, he knew exactly how much to use to achieve his desired result. Then, as planned, the room was set ablaze with Ben's body inside. The next morning, a hotel employee discovered Ben's charred remains and notified the police of the discovery. This part of the story is a little bit confusing. Because if the room was set on fire, how did no one notice there was a fire to the next morning? They say that Ben's body showed signs of being burnt, but you would think the rest of the hotel would have caught fire if there was a fire in the room. So, the two theories I have are, one, Holmes was in such a rush to get out of there, he just maybe like tossed the match on Ben and ran out before he made sure that the fire caught. Or two, someone came in and put the fire out and just didn't say anything. I, It's unclear. I don't know, but... This is one of the many parts of this story that I found very frustrating. When police arrived, a detective noticed that the man showed no signs of a struggle, especially for someone who had been set on fire. This led them to believe that he had been killed prior to the fire. The employee went on to tell police that Ben was with another man when he checked in. This other man paid for the room. The employee found it odd enough to remember. He gave a vague description of the man, but police could not use it as credible evidence. Holmes yet again had another problem to deal with. Ben's wife, Carrie. She began voicing her concerns to Holmes. It had been weeks, and her husband had still not come back to the castle, nor had she been given any of the promised money from the fraud. Holmes would explain to Carrie that Ben needed to stay hidden if the insurance company was to pay. It wouldn't look good if the man they were trying to collect on was seen alive. He would give Carrie money to survive until Ben came home. This kept Carrie quiet for a time. That time would run out. You see, Carrie wasn't as dumb as Holmes assumed her to be. After Ben's autopsy results came back, it wasn't ruled as an accident. It was ruled a homicide. Ben's lungs showed no smoke damage. What they did show, however, were traces of chloroform. Carrie, assuming Ben's absence was a part of the plan laid by Holmes, was heartbroken when she was given the news of her beloved husband's demise. She began to tell the police everything she knew. Holmes thought he would yet again explain his way out of the horror he had created, but Carrie ultimately would bring him down. On November 17, 1894, Holmes was finally arrested. But his arrest wasn't for murder. There was a warrant out for his arrest from the theft of a horse in Texas. This wasn't what the police wanted to convict him on, but it did allow them to keep him in custody while they built their case for the murders. Police went to Holmes Castle, and what they found was nearly indescribable. All of Holmes' secret peepholes, the gas lines to the rooms, the labyrinth of secret passageways, the halls that led to nowhere, the trap doors, and the basement filled with torture devices and a furnace used to cremate human beings, 
The castle was filled with damning evidence. His trial was open and shut. Holmes would confess to 27 murders. What is odd about the names given in his confession was that some of them were still alive and well. Holmes would ultimately be sentenced to hang. While awaiting his fate in jail, he was approached by a local newspaper and offered $7,500 for a memoir. Holmes obliged. Some of the entries were so grandiose and despicable, the public was shocked beyond comprehension. The police, however, did not know what to believe. Holmes' long track record of being a professional con man was apparent. Holmes, at one point in the memoir, claimed, quote, I was born with the devil inside me, end quote. That, no one disputed. Holmes demanded that his body be buried ten feet deep and the hole filled with concrete. He was concerned about grave robbers, fitting for a man like Holmes. The day of Holmes' execution had finally arrived. He was led to the gallows and a noose placed around his neck. When the trap door swung open and Holmes fell until the rope was taut, his neck did not break. Instead of allowing Holmes a quick death, which hanging often provides, he was allowed to be strangled by his own body weight. It is said it took nearly 20 minutes for Holmes to finally expire. Holmes suffered a similar fate to so many of his victims. It can be considered poetic. There you have it, sports fans. The story of Henry H. Holmes, America's first recorded serial killer. A couple housekeeping items I discovered, I guess you could say, while recording this and during. Um, people ask what happened to the castle. It was demolished in the 30s, 1938, I think, and now a post office sits on top of it. <laughs> Uh, the second thing is, is what is Holmes' body count? Well, some say that it could be upwards of 200. And predicated on the size of the house and how long Holmes had been doing what he was doing, that, that's, a fair, that's a fair number to uh, guess. The third thing is, um, they thought that maybe Holmes being the you know, next level con artist that he is, maybe faked his own death somehow, and he was never buried below all that concrete, and the real reason he wanted to be buried under 10 feet of concrete was, it, was so that no one would go looking. Well, someone did. I think it was in like 2017 or something like that. Uh, no, it was like 2007, I think. Uh, his body was exhumed, and they were able to determine that it, in fact, was Henry Holmes. Uh, another really cool theory that I came across um, was that during the time Jack the Ripper was doing his thing in London, Holmes was there. So some people think that 
maybe H.H. Holmes was, in fact, Jack the Ripper. There are a lot of claims out there that state he wasn't Jack the Ripper, but, I mean, there's no conclusive evidence, at least at the time of this recording, that I could find to say he definitely was or he definitely was not. I guess because this guy was an elite caliber bullshit artist, we may never know for sure. I would really love it if they found proof that Holmes was Jack the Ripper. That mystery has been fucking about for far too long now. Well, it would be nice to finally put that thing to rest. Uh, actually, another cool thing I discovered about Holmes was, I guess he was arrested in Philadelphia finally by the Pinkertons. And if you don't know who the Pinkertons are, they were like this super elite detective agency that went after and caught bad guys that local or other federal affair authorities were failing to find. So I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought it was pretty cool to hear, hear about that. All right, friends. That's going to do it for this episode. We will be back next week. Stay safe and take care. Wow. Okay. Um, not quite done yet. I still have something to say. We have a thing. We have, we have a thing at the end. So let me do the thing. You can join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash worldwide crime podcast. Also, you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. So listen on your favorite platform. And if you're on Apple, please give us a five-star rating if you think we've earned it. Tell your friends, tell your family to check us out. And uh, until next time, guys, stay safe, and we'll see you on the next one.